Hello, Sword People. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Danielle Sibulski, who, amongst other things, she has the Medieval Podcast, which now has a 100 episodes out. Uh, she has a course called the Medieval Masterclass, aimed at getting people to write better about the Middle Ages. She has several books out, including Life in Medieval Europe, and she's a featured writer on Medievalist.net. So without further ado, Danielle, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to see you. And whereabouts are you currently? I live near Toronto, so I live in Canada. You know, Canadians are very much overrepresented on this show. I don't know what it is about Canada, but there is so many of you who are interesting and end up on the show. Oh, that's <laughs> good to know. It's good to hear. <laughs> is that where you're from? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I grew up in Northern Ontario. I don't live there now, um, but that's just kind of circumstance. But yeah, Canadian all my life. I did live in Scotland for a while before I knew I was a medievalist at heart. So that oh, was wow. A bit of a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. But yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, I should have gone there and I should have gone here and I should have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Always exactly. the way. Well, I mean, Scotland's still there and the COVID restrictions will end eventually and you can you can go back and wander along Hadrian's Wall and actually most of that in England. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's lots of medieval stuff in Scotland. Yeah. I used uh, to live in Edinburgh for about five years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's city. where I live too. I wonder if we were there at the same time. But yeah, I mean, I could probably credit it to to my being a medievalist because of all the great stuff there. So when were you there? I was there in 2000, 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I was there. I left in March 2001 to move to Finland to open my school. So, yes, we would have been there at the same time. Perhaps we even passed in the street. That's crazy, crazy small world. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Okay. Now, you're a medievalist, writer, presenter, and, you know, Definitely. I mean, there's, there's medieval in literally everything that I've mentioned in the introduction. So yeah. clearly medievalism is your thing. Yeah. So how did you get into it? Um, accidentally, <laughs> like okay. I said. So um, I, I had started an undergraduate degree in theater um, mm -hmm. and then I left. I went and lived in Scotland for a while. I came back and I was going to be a secondary school teacher and that didn't work out. I didn't get into the school to be a secondary school teacher. And I remember speaking to some of my friends that were going off to do graduate school. And I said to them, you know, if I was to do anything in graduate school, it would be medieval studies. And it just kind of like fell out of my mouth. I didn't realize it was coming. Okay. <laughs> I had taken medieval courses and I didn't know that you could do that for a living, medieval literature or that kind of history. Right. And so when that came out of my mouth, I realized that was the path that I wanted to take. So I I had already graduated. I did kind of a victory lap at university. And mm -hmm. then I went and did my master's degree in uh, in English literature, but my specialization was in the medieval period. So that's okay. how I kind of fell into it. So what, what literature did you study? I liked Arthurian literature best. Mm -hmm. So Well, yes. I mean, it's <laughs> knights and, and jousting. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great yeah. stuff. I mean, we talked about being geeks and stuff, but like, this is the superhero literature of the time. These are people who are sure. dealing with good and evil and 
making choices and magic. Yeah. And all of these things. So who wouldn't love it? So I wasn't really into Chaucer or the type of stuff that was a satire or social commentary Mm -hmm. in terms of literature. I like the stories that were stories for story's sake. And uh, those, those are the ones that I studied mostly. So like the Avengers movies of the 13th century. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Any particular favorites? Oh, Gawain, Gawain. So Gawain and the Green Knight yeah, is Green the best. Knight, yeah. yeah. It's the best. because it, And it's not because like it's popular. It's because of the tough choices that Gawain has to make. He has to decide how, how he's going to live, right? Is he going to live and, and make this choice that's difficult, that goes against his code? Or, you know, is he going to let himself die? Like, these are tough choices for a really moral, amazing knight. And so, yeah, that's probably my favorite. As so the hallmark of good stories is it's it's interesting people put in impossible situations where they have to make these awful choices. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. So am I right in thinking that you don't actually swing swords around? I don't. No. Okay. No, that's okay. We we have a, a very kind of broad church here, and you know you don't have to do swords to be on on the show. It's fine. I I, sh- um, <laughs> I shoot. I do archery. You shoot. Does that I do count? archery. That that totally counts. Um, is it is it sort of longbow archery or is it modern archery? No, I use a modern recurve. Bow. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. That, that that just about slides in under the wire. <laughs> <laughs> if you well, set a compound bow, it'd be like, nah, sorry, that doesn't count. <laughs> no, it doesn't count at all. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, let's be honest. I use a recurve bow because I can't afford a longbow, or I couldn't when I started. So, <laughs> oh, right. oh, fair enough. Uh, fair enough. But actually, they're not that difficult to make. Yeah. Yeah, it would be difficult for me to make them. <laughs> okay. Um, you don't have a woodworking background then? No. No. I, I, well, I forget that everybody does. There's a difference between having a woodworking background. Like I've done some woodworking, but mm-hmm. I don't own the tools. <laughs> I don't oh, okay. have the space. So okay. there's that, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so after your uh, master's degree in medieval literature, what – where did you go from there in terms of like historical inspirations? What sort of sources? What re- what really gets you about the Middle Ages? Um, that it's misunderstood. Um, okay. So when I was when I was taking courses in medieval literature, I was struck by things like um, the fact that they didn't think the Earth was flat. Like this is the first time I came no. across it, right? And no. I, I I was in university. Like how did we not know this? And so right after I finished my master's degree, I started to have children. And at that time, I was really kind of looking for ways to um, to stay a part of the world that I love so much, the academic world, uh, or at least the world of people sharing knowledge, right? So not necessarily being part of post-secondary system, but like people sharing stuff that they're passionate about. So I started to write a blog that I called the Five Minute Medievalist. And the idea was mm-hmm. that I could make people five minute medievalists, like make the medievalists in five minutes. But then people started to call me that, so that's kind of what I've stuck with. But it was through that that um, Peter from Medievalist.net found me, and then I started to write professionally for him while I was teaching some college classes. So that's kind of how I got into that. But it was really um, all those questions that people have when they are interacting with medieval fiction. I had some of those answers, right, just from studying. Sure. And so that's that's kind of where I started that blog and where I started that work as a public historian. Yeah, we're sort of we're faced with a similar problem in that most people think in, in the sword world, in that most people 
that seem to think that a medieval sword weighs like 10 kilos and armor is so heavy you have to be lifted onto your horse with a crane and all that sort of thing so so i'm really familiar with the problem of people misunderstanding and even like okay 19th century fencing historian egerton castle famously wrote in his schools and masters of fencing he describes the rough, untutored fighting of the Middle Ages, and it drives me absolutely mental. I mean, it's like 130 years ago he did this, and it still drives me mad. It's like, <laughs> no, you don't have these beautiful artifacts, and then you use them like you were, you know, the kind of uh, caveman didn't do this either, but the kind of the modern image of a caveman with a club, oh, stupid, bump. right? Yeah. It's just, it just doesn't compute, right? So, okay, so what are your favorite, um, shall we say, bugbears about what people get wrong about the, <laughs> about the Middle Ages? Well, I think that you're onto something in that we really underestimate the type of craftsmanship that was going on at that time. Like the weapons that you're talking about, like beautifully balanced and they're ornate or they're just, they're sharpened to perfection. Like these are amazing artifacts and people don't seem to. Like, you can't have people who are collecting filth, you know, like in Monty Python, and creating these things at the same time. Like, it, right. as you say, it doesn't compute. So, that artifacts that we are looking at, they immediately disprove things that people assume about the Middle Ages. Sure. But and I think a lot of it also is we have forgotten how to do the things that they did. So, like, for example, if, if, we, if we don't have our washing machines and our you know, showers and our shampoo and what have you, in in a few days we really start to smell. But they didn't have any of those things, so they stayed clean in other ways. Yeah, exactly. I was going to uh, say, like, that. that's another one that um, people are always on about, that this this is a time where people were unclean, where we know they're having baths. Right. And we have evidence that says, you know, that if you need to quickly freshen your breath, chew some clothes, like... <laughs> right. They can. Like, they can. Well, yeah, obviously. But it's just people, I don't know where it comes from, except for just kind of repetition, that people assume that you could go through your life as kind of a doll, right? And not have any thoughts and not have any hopes and not have any dreams. Like, I remember reading someone um, saying that they didn't really have friends, they had coworkers. And I was thinking, but these are human beings. <laughs> <laughs> of course they had like of course they have friends but people will question things like did they love their children or like did they right. use contraception or like but of course they did because they're people <laughs> yeah know? and and the contraception may not have been as reliable as what we use now but they had some approaches well and, and they certainly had the drive to use it like they had the oh, same yeah. <laughs> the same reasons to use it that <laughs> do, we do, do this, of course, brings immediately to mind that bit in the Five Minute Medievalist where you're talking about a red leather strap on. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, yeah. I mean, and, and okay, listeners, you can't see this, but but Danielle's background is actually these red acoustic tiles, and of course, that just you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't I've it never, amazing? <laughs> next time I come in this little booth, I'm going to be thinking of like. <laughs> Red leather uh, sex toys. Thank you for that. <laughs> you are most welcome. I'm, I'm I'm delighted to enhance your life in that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
But yeah, uh, I mean, things like sex toys and the fact that, and I do say this in, in the five minute medievalist, the fact that people are making not only sex toys, but ones that are red leather speaks to an aesthetic that they want, right? Like you right. have to take the time to dye this leather. So it's not just, it's not primitive. It's not a primitive time if there ever was a primitive time. And uh, yeah, we really need to recognize that, I think. Sure. And, you know, I've, I've seen people doing like Stone Age work, reproducing Stone Age culture things. And clearly we're talking about a sophisticated culture and they have tracked flints from like, like 70,000 years ago. There were flints being traded across like a two or 3,000 mile long thing. So people were traveling and, and goods were being, they were communicating with people. And yeah, isn't, so um, you have a, Kind of like a theme in some of your work about the global Middle Ages. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's something that I don't know enough about. But that's something okay. that I think we need to know more about. And that's because, you know, if you go to graduate school, you have to specialize in something. And for me, sure. it was it was England and France in the 14th century. So that's really where my knowledge is or that's mm -hmm. where I've spent the most time. Um, but there is a whole wide world outside of medieval Europe. <laughs> and so um, I really am trying, at least on the podcast, uh, trying to bring more people on that are speaking to a, a range of experiences outside of Europe. Still, most of our content is based on Europe because that is where all the literature is being published. You know, um, right. it's focused on Europe. But um, I, I'm hoping that people recognize that it's not uh, it's not a bubble Right. There's a whole right. bunch of stuff that's happening. And I, I mean, you can, if, if you need a place to start, Peter Frankopan's Silk Roads is eye opening for that. Mm -hmm. uh, he really gets at that fact that, like, we center Europe as being the middle of the world, but it's definitely not, especially at this time. It's not even the most sophisticated place in the, in the world when you think of technology or advanced knowledge either. So, so we're yeah. thinking China for that? <laughs> Who's the best? I don't know. Or, no, no, no. Um, just I, I'm thinking. I, I would the, the two cultures that would spring immediately to mind would be sort of um, Constantinople and sort of Turkey. Well, it's Istanbul now, but Constantinople as it was then, yeah. and perhaps um, sort of China, mainland China, where they have like gunpowder and silk and all sorts yeah. of advance. Yeah. So technologically in terms of like items i think you can make the argument that china's ahead of everybody because as mm -hmm. you say they have gunpowder very early they have paper very early they are making silk and a lot of that is taken by europeans and used later mm -hmm. on um but places like constantinople or places where the um the continents kind of intersect in terms of trade is where all the knowledge is growing right so there's a whole right. lot of knowledge that is growing up through um, that's coming to Europe, for example, through India, through the Middle East, especially things like math and medicine. So, yeah, I mean, it's not none of these things are one directional, right? <laughs> like right. Sing singular, a singular direction. So there's knowledge and goods being traded back and forth across many continents, um, if not all continents. We just discovered that there are some Venetian beads that have arrived that arrived in Alaska before Columbus arrived wow. in America. Yeah. So like- I wonder how they got there. 
that's that's the question and that's what makes it interesting and, and why I think that we need to kind of expand our focus to a global Middle Ages because this stuff is really, really fascinating. That said, I can't know all that at once, nah, which is why <laughs> I bring people on the my podcast to talk about so, that stuff because I think I need to know more and, and we all need to know more. Well, again, that's one of the reasons I have this podcast is I, I, it, it basically people like you who we, I've, we've never met. Um, but you'll come and talk to me for an hour because it's a podcast. So somehow, somehow that's like an excuse and it works. It's great. All sorts of people <laughs> talk to me who I would have, I, I would have no way of just politely saying, um, could we just chat for an hour sometime? They'd be like, if they're polite, they'll probably say, yeah, sure, maybe. And it would never happen. Yeah. But with a podcast, you actually get to talk to people. It's great. Yeah. And um, other people can, other people can get something out of it too, which is great. Sure. Uh, so yes, it's like having, yeah, you know, like sitting in the pub together and they're they're listening while the two geeks go off on each other. <laughs> That's right. Everyone at the <laughs> pub is listening. <laughs> um, so as a as someone with an interest in like Arthurian legends and clearly, so you know, knights in armor and swords and things like that have some appeal. Um, <laughs> yeah. What what's really your 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 main attraction to that particular period? Uh, given that you don't practice swords and armor, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably something a little different. Um, well, the 14th century, I really like because of all the disasters. Okay. So, um, it's, and it's not so much that I love seeing suffering and things like that as much mm-hmm. as I always want to know, like, how did they live through that? What did they right. do to... Um, cope with it what do they do to express themselves during this time the 14th century is the one where there's famine there's plague there's war there's everything that you could imagine that uh, will afflict you know large groups of people and and i want to know more about how they deal with that and also the 14th century is interesting to me because um of the way that people are expressing themselves so for me somebody who studies a lot in english this is when english is starting to come to the fore as a language. So remember, like mm-hmm. I studied literature, so right. language is important. And so what makes this important all of a sudden and how are people expressing themselves in the language of the people, the vernacular, instead of Latin, right? The language mm-hmm. of scholarship. So all of those things are interesting to me. I do love, in terms of military stuff, the tournament idea is it's really cool and fascinating because you have it's roots in warfare, right? And especially practice for warfare, but like how it evolves to be a sport that's something safer that still has like martial elements in it, but it's made so that people can participate in a way that is safe and that everyone can enjoy. I think that's really interesting too. And you find that, of course, tournaments a lot in Arthurian literature. Sure. I I actually interviewed somebody recently, a guy called Callum Forbes, whose episode will already be out by now. Um, who has been like recreating these tournaments and, you know, and he gets people showing up on horses with armor and jousting at each other pretty much as they used to do it. And it's, it's stunning to me, firstly, how they don't all die. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it strikes yeah. me as incredibly dangerous. Um, but of course, it's one of those things where it's obviously dangerous. And so you take precautions and have, all sorts of safety protocols in place, as I'm sure they they used to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I've said this many times, but A Knight's Tale is my favorite 
medieval movie, and that's because <laughs> it really, I, it really is, and it is for so many medievalists. When sure. I when I first said this kind of out loud on medievalist on, I think it was twenty fourteen, maybe twenty fifteen, mm-hmm. and um, I thought ever I thought it was going to be like laughed out of the field, but everybody loves this movie, <laughs> and it's because it gets at that excitement of this event, right where. Right. People are showing up and they're getting to see a spectacle and they're getting to, you know, have the stadium food and to show themselves off and that kind of stuff too. But it's it's very similar to the type of sporting events that we have now where like mm-hmm. American football is very rough. I don't watch it, but I'm going to say that it's pretty rough. And so we have all this equipment to like mitigate the danger, but we still watch it or people still watch it. Um, because of the fact that it is dangerous, but also it's full of pageantry and things like that. We still love that. So, yeah, yeah I, I these are dangerous sports, but they're also super fun, I think. Sure. And you know, I watched um, A Knight's Tale when it came out, and I went with two friends. And one of them is a guy called J.T. Palika, who makes unbelievably good swords and is something of a specialist in kind of early medieval and Viking era swords. And, you know, he, he's like ridiculously well versed in how they really used to do these things. And the other guy sat next to me was a guy called Lasse Matala, who is a arms and armor conservator and knows literally all there is to know. He, he wouldn't agree with that statement, of course, because he, you know, he's actually does know what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah, he knows all there is to know about arms and armor and how they work and how they fit together and how they, you know, how they function as, as artifacts and what have you. And we were just sat there and after about maybe four or five minutes in, we had to make a decision, right? <laughs> is, is, are we, are we trying to make this a film that, and hold it to a kind of standard of sort of accuracy of period gear or do we just enjoy the romp that it is? And we just thought, ah, oh, yeah, fuck it. We'll just enjoy the romp that it is. And it is an absolute romp. And the yeah. jousting is fantastic. Yeah, it's so oh. much fun. <laughs> and the, well, there's one bit where this closed helm flies across the crowd. It's like, no, 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 no. no. If that happened, there's a head inside that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But the guy survived. So clearly, I mean, there, there, there were details that, yeah, you know, that from from uh, from what we know of medieval culture, there are an awful lot of, shall we say, liberties taken. Right. But I but, think you know. they get the heart of it right. That's exactly right. And I think that, I mean, that's what happens in Arthurian literature, right? So much of that is sure. written in the 14th century. It's supposed to be about the 12th century or earlier, or like a time when they didn't have tournaments. So it's exactly the same type of thing in the Middle Ages that's happening where people are like, this is a fun experience. Let's have our heroes experience this as well. So right. yeah, it's it's a tradition of, of <laughs> just suspending your disbelief, right? And enjoying something. Sure. Um, okay, so many of the listeners are interested in studying medieval martial arts from medieval sources, as I do. And, you know, they most of us are not trained historians. So whenever I get a historian on the show, I like to ask them for advice to the untrained historians out there who really want to recreate medieval martial arts from the sources. How would you advise us? Um, well, I was thinking about this question. I'm really glad you sent it to me beforehand. And that, <laughs> <laughs> okay. and that is because um, you can learn a lot from these source books, but at the same time, 
those are only representing the people that wrote them and the people that read them. And there are a whole lot more people who are learning how to fight in the Middle Ages that don't have access to these books or the same masters, the same sword master, that kind of stuff. So it gives you a snapshot into how some people are doing that. But from there, you can't necessarily extrapolate that everybody's doing that or they're doing it the same way because it's very highly individualistic. Like I don't do swords, but I do do Krav Maga. And you know, as a martial artist, that like who you have training you affects how your fighting style is. Right? Absolutely. So you might be learning in a totally different way from someone else. And uh, they might be learning. It's like someone from your same country, your same town, the same county might be learning it in a different way. And so I think that these fight books are super, super important because they do give us a snapshot. We wouldn't have one otherwise because it's such a physical thing, but they're not necessarily representative of how everybody's doing this. So I like watching reenactors fight you do see things like improvisation that you don't see in fight books right so, and you see things that will happen that look more like jujitsu right you're like what <laughs> this doesn't look like two people who are clashing swords this looks like two people who are grappling in a jujitsu tournament but but the grappling is there in the books too so yes. we have we have abundant kind of grappling information yeah, I'm not saying that but, that's not yeah. in the books, but sometimes you see stuff that is improvised because mm-hmm. um, no fight is going to go in a way that is choreographed or nice looking. It's always going to fall apart. <laughs> you do find people Generally. improvising. Yeah. And from that, they learn things that worked. Like it's kind of Darwinism, right? If you survive this battle, maybe you learn something that works and then you're going to teach that to the next generation. They might teach that or they might not. So yeah, these books are really important. But um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there there has to be kind of an open-mindedness when you're studying this stuff to allow for the fact that there is going to be a difference in how people are fighting at the time. So you can't really say with any absolute certainty, people were not fighting in this way because probably someone who was fighting in a way that's not covered in the book. Well, that's something you see in literally every historical statement, like Vikings didn't have two-handed swords. And then six months later, somebody finds a Viking sword that is, has a long grip for two hands, right? You, yeah. you can you can pretty much find, yeah, well, you can, other than like massive technological uh, anachronisms, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to find people wearing wristwatches in 1200, but, <laughs> But there are, there's a massive variety to how people will actually fight, obviously. And I see, I think that the way the books tend to be written, take Fiore, for example, because it's, are you familiar with Fiore Battaglia? Yeah. Okay. Well enough. Like, no, I'm okay. not an expert, but I okay. have it. Right. Um, he calls his sort of technical expositions plays, mm. right? And there's a kind of there's an implication there that okay this is this is if you like the platonic ideal of this particular action. Now go play with it and make it work, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes he's quite prescriptive about you know have this foot forward or do this or wait like this or you know, stand like this or whatever. But generally speaking, there's quite a lot of slippage. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that what you're saying is absolutely correct in that you should put your feet a certain way if you want this particular move to work 
But then right. there's endless variety in how people are doing that. They may have an injury. They may be the wrong height. You know, they might right. have a different weight. It depends on all sorts of factors. And so, like you see this in, in martial arts, people will they'll make an exception that that works for their own bodies. And so, when you kind of magnify that <laughs> that movement over hundreds of practices, repetitions, it's going to look different by the end, right? Sure. Someone who's performed, you know something that they learn from Fury as a young person might perform it differently as an older person, you know, if they've lived Absolutely. that long through that many battles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I, I've had hundreds and hundreds of students pass through my doors at various times and not one of them fences like any other one of them because, yeah, exactly. you know, height and weight and aptitude and also just like personality. Yeah. Yeah. That's a exactly. huge one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. So it, yeah, Go ahead. it's it's more about being flexible in the way we look at it. So if we know now that there is a flexibility in how people are doing the same move, then we should assume that there is at least that much um, a range of difference in how people are doing it back in the day. Sure, and it's also I think worth remembering that uh, these treatises are not generally speaking, military manuals for training squads of soldiers who all have to move the same for the squad to work as a as a unit. They are teaching a very individualistic culture or people from a very individualistic culture how to, you know, how to win fights in that culture. And, you know, were they not a knight in a, in a, tournament or a, or a single combat or whatever or holding the field or some, doing some kind of feat of arms he's not there to do it by the book he's there to get people to write the book about him because he's so cool <laughs> that's right exactly exactly might come up with a new thing for right. people and um something else that you said i think is really important is that up until you know probably the 16th century really or maybe the late 15th century people didn't have standing armies so we don't actually have much information at all about how the vast majority of soldiers were trained because they weren't right. soldiers on a normal day they were farmers <laughs> right they were conscripted to to fight in an army um and we don't know a lot about how they fought so you know we have to kind of allow for that the fact that we don't know anything about that when we're looking at that time as well. Yeah, there are some very interesting gaps. And I actually have several colleagues who are working on trying to figure out what, well, because a lot of these fencing sources talk about the common method. So common fencers do this, but the scholars do that, right? Um, and from hints like that, they're trying to recreate this common method. What would it have been <laughs> like? How would it have been? And of course, in, unless unless we find some authoritative manuscript describing the common method, we're never going to know for sure how how close we're getting. But it's an interesting problem because it has to be simple and it has to kind of fit the culture. Uh, but any, any ideas where we could go looking for insights into that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay, that's fair. That's just, just a thought. <laughs> no, I don't. I I really, I really don't. Just keep digging though, because I mean, mm -hmm. most of the sources that we have from the Middle Ages, many of them are still untranslated. So just, just keep digging. Something will come up. <laughs> Although possibly not about the common method, because why would you write a book about a common thing? Although some people did. Yeah, well, and then 
the question is as well, if it's a common method, how common is it if we don't have any any evidence of it? Besides the fact people saying, you know, don't do it like this is if nobody's written it down, how common is it? <laughs> you know, and where where have they seen this before? Have they seen it only in their own country? Have they seen it somewhere else? So yeah, I don't know where you would find more about that, but there's definitely a lot of questions you need to ask as you reconstruct that, right? To, to, so, to and I, accommodate for that. And, and that's actually one of the reasons why I, I tend to stick to the styles for which we have like abundant documentation. It's just so much easier. Yeah. I could, why I could not? just like, oh, yes, um, let's do some Fury Longsword stuff. Okay. Here's the book, right? There are the uh, 54 plays of the Longsword. Let's do those. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. It's, it makes life a lot easier. Um, <laughs> now, tell us about your book, Life in the, in Medieval Europe. What, okay. obviously <laughs> it's about it? life in medieval Europe. Yeah. Like, okay. So obviously I think it'd be a great idea if the listeners went out and bought it and then read it and studied it and whatever. And, but, to help persuade them to do that, maybe we should tell them what's in it and then they'll go, oh, I'd like to know more about that thing. Yes, yes. I think everyone should read it too. Okay. Um, basically, uh, it's it's a book that I wrote kind of based on the type of questions that I get asked a lot, especially mm-hmm. when people are looking at fiction. So questions about religion, questions about family life, questions about violence uh, or myths that people bring up to me about that stuff. And I wrote this book in kind of a, a way that maybe is not all that conventional in that I wrote it as a series of answers to questions, which is actually a very medieval way of teaching. It's a very medieval way of teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in a modern sense, you can read it sort of front to back and, and read it all like in a consecutive fashion, or you can go to the table of contents and you can look up the questions and then you can kind of dip into the question that you want answered and then, you know, put it on the shelf. And so it's kind of, it's kind of a historical book that you can just read and enjoy. And it's kind of a reference book that you can come back to. So say you're, you know, you're, you read it, you forgot about some things, you're watching Game of Thrones and you have a question, you can come back to it and just look up the stuff that you want pretty easily. So that's the way I wrote it. But it really is addressing a lot of the daily life stuff that people ask me about, like, you know, did people love their children? Well, how do we know? Here's how we know. How do we know? <laughs> well, we know because they grieved a lot. Actually. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, grief and is probably the easiest it. way. Yeah, it's probably the easiest way to access that in that people wrote poems about their children that they had lost. Um, mm-hmm. And this this includes children that were uh, that had died before they were baptized or if they were young or if they died later on. So the guy who wrote Sir Gawain in The Green Knight wrote a really moving poem about his uh, daughter who died young. So we know from that. And we also know from things like, and I do have this in the book, where there is one cathedral that asked for permission to put a fence around their graveyard because um, people were sneaking in to bury their unbaptized children in the churchyard. So oh, that, that's hot. Yeah. I, ha- I cried when I wrote that sentence uh, many times, actually revising that sentence. Um, so... It's people were risking their own souls by marrying their children in the hopes that their children would reach heaven. And if that is not 
yeah. uh, sign that people love their children. I don't know what it is. So that's one of the ways that we can tell. And obviously, I mean, they bought them toys, right? right. <laughs> they yes. visited them. <laughs> they, yeah, they love them. Of course they love them. It's yeah. uh, surprising it's, it's to me that it's a question. <laughs> well, that's it. But and, it is. And, and I, I often get asked questions that I could not possibly have anticipated that anybody would ever ask because. Okay. But people, like what? But people do. Um, well, I mean, like the classic, like we're, we're sword sharp. <laughs> That's a new okay. one. Yeah. We're sword sharp. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did armor work? Uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> okay. And I, yes. And of course, you know, it is technically possible these days to get a slightly better edge on a piece of steel than they could do back then because you've got better control over how the steel is made and and armor isn't perfect you can shoot through it you can uh, go through the gaps you can break somebody's armor they're wearing it you can drown them in it um but it's it certainly it's an awful lot better to get hit over the head with a sword if you're wearing armor than if you're not (laughs) and I, i have experience of both so i can actually say that from personal experience was the sword sharp? I hope it wasn't sharp. Um, well, the one the, I, I've done lots of sharp on sharp stuff, um, but no, the, when, I, when I got hit in the head and it split my head open, it was fortunately it was a blood sword. But um, yeah, wow. but having having a proper helmet on, like a proper kind of um, a reproduction of a medieval helmet, I've never had that problem. Um, so, but yeah, people don't know, and actually, I would much rather that they asked. Absolutely, absolutely, and it, I mean. I hope that this is not coming across as being like, you should never ask a question. Of course, you should ask questions. But it's kind of a surprise that we are not educated to know these things already, I think. Right. You know, that's kind of what what I'm getting at. It's not our fault if we are educated that, you know, everyone thought the earth was flat. If that's what we're taught, then that's what we know. But it's surprising to me that we're not taught differently because the the evidence is obvious. Sure. Although, I mean, to be fair... I guess many history teachers are working off books that were put together by people who didn't really know what they're doing sometime in the 1950s. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, and, exactly. and we've learned quite a bit since then. Yeah. Although the flat earth thing, but anyway. The, wi- <laughs> but uh, the which thing? The flat earth thing. Oh, the flat earth thing. Yes, it's still. They should have known that in the 50s, but I know what you're saying. And that's yeah. exactly it. I, I don't kind of trade on making people feel bad about what they no, don't no, of know. Not. Because what's the point? Right. <laughs> what's yeah, the yeah. Point? and 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 the, it's it's good that they asked. But um, feel free to skip this question if you like. But it just occurred to me: um, is there a question you wished people wouldn't ask you? That I wish people wouldn't ask me. I can't think of one. I can't think of one. Um, I think that the the only things that. Um, get my back up i think or when people imply that there was you know racial superiority <laughs> in the middle <laughs> yeah. ages yeah okay that that um obviously is irritating for all sorts of reasons but uh i again uh, if somebody thinks like, as, yeah sorry, sorry. i discussed like um the the pinnacle of arts sciences and culture wasn't necessarily europe then it was like china and um persia mostly yeah and, yeah, exactly. And yeah, the same people who are like, "Oh, keep those nasty foreigners out of our, of our 
Like, no, yeah. no, no. Where, where do we get our maths from? So, I mean, again, like, I prefer that people would ask the question. Sure. But I guess I would prefer that they accept the answer, <laughs> which that, is that, yeah, okay. you know, it's no, obviously there is no racial superiority then or now. And right. uh, so, yeah, I guess uh, that would be the only those. It depends on how you ask that question, but I would prefer people ask the question and then understood the answer and accepted the answer that, you know, Europe is not the be all and end all and is especially not, you know, that there is one race above the other. That's never been the case. <laughs> Very true. Um, so you have a course called the Medieval Masterclass, and this is aimed at writers. Am I right? Yeah. So it's the whole title is the Medieval Masterclass mm-hmm. for Creators. Mm-hmm. And I made it so that people who are creating, whether it's fiction, many of the people who have taken it so far have been novelists, but fiction, graphic novels, uh, film, anyone who needs kind of a look at it in terms of three dimensions can take this course and they don't have to worry about getting, you know, an undergraduate degree. So this is where um, the people who are instructors and I have a few people who are in it right now who are instructing beth rogers does food ken monshine who you know does yep. warfare and swordsmanship um tom timbrell who does uh blacksmithing all over uh demonstrations mm-hmm. all over the uk he does blacksmithing and katrin kanya does textiles and then i do kind of daily objects and also architecture so this is also that people who are creating fiction can see what these things look like so they can describe it for others Right. Because, you know, you can read a history book and say, you know, Henry took a drink. Right. But what does that look like? What does that cup look like? What is it made of? And with some of the objects, I can actually show you like I lift them up and you can see what the weight is of those things. Or with Katrin's textiles, she shows you how this is made. So you can see the texture. And so this is really created for people who are not they're not in it for book learning. There are other places you can go for book learning. And I do give bibliographies as well. But this is more for people who need to be able to describe emotion, like a motion, mm-hmm. <laughs> not emotion, yeah. um, or to describe a physical object. And so that's what I show them in this class. It's it's very specific, but I think uh, audiences, especially now, are looking for that kind of detail when they're so- accessing that work so the people who are creating that work also need to access that detail so that's what that offers i I have a suspicion it should come with a warning though that it might very well impair your enjoyment of certain tv shows (laughs) (laughs) yes but you know i've said this before but i remember uh doing an interview with dan jones and he said to me like we don't need to be the fun police and i think that's true like there's a certain point certain point at which we don't need to be the fun police. Let people enjoy their stories about the Holy Grail. As long as you also have the history accessible to them, there's a point at which right. people should be able to enjoy things. As long as they're not touted as real history. Well, that, that's know. the thing. I, I have no problems with a story that has, you know, magic or whatever. You know, Lord of the Rings and what have you. It's not, it's not trying to be, this is what happened in 1347, right? It's This, is ha- this happened in Middle Earth at some point in some... You know, is it even this planet? Probably not. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so, but it's when something is presented as this is how things actually were and it is demonstrably obviously wrong that I get. That actually is happening more rarely these days, I think. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what I mean. That's one of the reasons I created this course is that people don't want to see <clears throat> they don't want to see things that are done improperly anymore. They want to see what it was really like. And so let's do that. Let's give it to them. I mean, that's why we study, isn't it? It's not so we can sure. just keep trading books in the ivory tower. It's so that we can share this information. And uh, I think most people come to the Middle Ages through fiction. So let's sure. make it better fiction. Yeah, that's a great idea. Is it mostly pre-recorded stuff or is it live? I do two live classes and those live classes are with me um, mm -hmm. because I run the class. Yeah. And that frees it frees up my other experts to do their own thing, right? Sure. So there's our pre-recorded, which makes a lot of sense when you consider that. Like Catherine can't like recreate a linen thread every week, you know, or every <laughs> Yeah, that that wouldn't work. Right. So that makes sense yeah. that that's pre-recorded. And it gives you the opportunity to like see things close up that you can't really mm -hmm. do with a Zoom call. So oh, sure. I do two I do two live classes because the other part of the the masterclass that I think is important is building community of people yeah. who are also creating. Yeah. So I do that as a, a webinar so people can get to know each other and then they mm -hmm. can rely on each other and use each other for like motivation, especially yeah. now when we're all kind of stuck and isolated. So yeah, I do two live classes and the others are pre-recorded. Yeah, I, I do something pretty similar with my own online courses. They are primarily pre-recorded and then I have occasional live classes or AMA sessions or whatever where people can show up and ask questions. And we actually have a Discord group for the online school. Members. Oh, really? So they can actually interact with each other directly. Mm -hmm. And it's great because I mean, some of the people that have really interesting like specializations and professions and what have you, and they get into discussions with each other that I'm just sitting back going, oh, this is cool, and just taking notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it also it frees me from from being like the teacher. I can just observe <laughs> and watch them interact with each other. Yeah, that's the thing. I We have a – well, we the class has a community board where people can do that, mm -hmm. and then after yeah. they've finished, uh, there's a Facebook group. So all of the okay. alumni, as soon as you finish, you can, you can join that group and speak with other people that are creating. That's a great idea. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Okay. Um, that obviously you've done a lot of things, uh, yes. but I do have a couple of questions I ask most of my guests. And the first is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Um, I don't, I don't know because I always act on them. There are right. <laughs> about about a quarter of the guests say something like that. Yeah, so you're, I you're mean, in good company. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, because I'm always acting on them. I'm always trying new things uh, to keep myself interested. Mm -hmm. And I mean, part of the gig economy, you do need to keep trying new things as well. So there are some things that I'm going to try in the next, you know, six months, but I'm not going to spoil those now. <laughs> but I don't I don't hold on to ideas and never do them. Um, that's just, I guess, I just always find a way to make it happen. Excellent. Yeah. I, and again, you're, I, I think there's probably something about people who act on their ideas and get stuff done and out the door are more likely to sort of you know, pop up so I can see them because they'll have done these things. Because, I, I mean, I came across you through, um, I think it was the medievalist.net. That's probably where I – and then I saw your medieval course and then – I realized you knew Ken and I said, Oh, so I got Ken to introduce us and, and here we are. Um, but yeah, but if you hadn't have been producing all this stuff, are you acting on your ideas? I would have never known who you were. Well, so, I mean, so I guess 
Maybe I should yeah. change the questions. That's maybe not the best question I could ask. <laughs> uh, it's a really, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, it does bring up some interesting things sometimes. Yeah, it's just not not really for me because I'm always <laughs> always doing something new. Sure. And that's just it's just how it is. Okay, uh, and obviously you care about people finding out the. Should we say we can't really say the truth because that's a bit much, but. So we say the latest understanding of the medieval, medieval period, right? Yeah, I like that, yeah. So if somebody gave you a million dollars or a big chest of money, and it's imaginary money, so you can pretty much have as much as you want to spend improving medieval history studies worldwide, what would you do? I would expand the masterclass and I would open it up um, to more people. So again... There are so many people writing such great history and uh, we need to keep reading their books. I mean, we need to keep, people need to keep writing the books, but we also need to see these artifacts. And right now you can really only see them in museums. And so I would expand this masterclass and make it so that people are able to share more of the objects that we don't get to see very often. And I think that might start happening you know, in general now that people are starting to be more online with things people are starting to think more in terms of online and how we can share these things across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult because I know museums, they depend on people actually coming in to see exhibits. Sure. But if I had, if I had millions of pounds or dollars, I would, yeah, I would try and make it so that people could see that three-dimensional world more often and uh, more people could access it. That would be, that would be my dream. <laughs> <laughs> see, I don't think that the museums would mind because, you know, if you go to the Louvre, the one painting that has just this ridiculous crowd around it all the time is the Mona Lisa. And the reason for that is because everybody's already seen it. It is super famous, right? And so they go to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, to see the original of the thing that they've already seen on a hundred mugs and posters and whatever else, right? So I think actually getting, you know, when, when museums do put their, uh, I'm blanking on a completely exhibits exhibits. There we go. There we go. <laughs> um, so when the museums do put their exhibits online in a, you know, with like really high quality pictures and, and notes about where it comes from and that sort of stuff. I think people don't go, Oh, I, well, I've seen a picture of that sword. I'm not going to go to the museum then. They're going to go, Oh, that sword's in that museum. I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? No, I think you're right. I mean, because, I've seen pictures of, we were talking about Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, but when I actually sure. saw it at the British Library, like, well. You've seen the original brought, manuscript? Yeah, it brought tears oh, to my God. eyes. Oh, God. I was. did not touch it. It was no. on display. Okay. But one of the cool things about that manuscript that, you know, you might not see, many of the pictures of it are in black and white, um, is how grimy it is. It's really grimy from, like, people just loving it and reading it and reading mm-hmm. it over and over. But, I mean, there is there's a tactile quality to these objects that you can't really get at from just photographs. And this is kind of what, what I'm getting at where like something like parchment, it has a sound and it has a texture. And I mean, I've just written a book. It's I'm doing the revisions on it right now um, about monks. And one of the things is the, the monks are saying when we're reading, you can't disturb your fellow brothers from the reading, even if you turn your pages too loudly. So like, what does that sound like? Hmm. And I would love for other people to be able to like see things like the weight of an object or what it sounds like or how hmm. it moves. 
So like things like when people are doing reconstructions of armor, seeing that in motion is a completely different thing from seeing it on display. And so Absolutely. that, yeah, that would be something I'd like to, if I could invest in things, I would <laughs> want to invest in that. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, some museums are pretty good about actually getting people to handle objects. And yeah. like one of Craig Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, um, I, I think he works with uh, the Higgins Armouries Trust, which has Ewart Oakshot's collection of swords. And I have been there when Craig shows up with these two enormous cases and it's got swords in them. The oldest one is about 3,000 years old. And they go up to, and maybe he brought that particular weekend, he may have brought something as, as new as, say, 1800, right? And you put on gloves and he gives them to you to play with. Yeah. Right. There's nothing like and that. There's nothing like it. It is absolutely amazing. And when you, when you, like, there's the one I remember best. I mean, there were other swords that were just as beautiful and pretty, but there was this um, Scottish back sword, sort of mid 18th century. And the basket was really small. And when you put your hand in it, it sort of, it sort of did like that Terminator 2 thing where, where, the, where the metal just kind of melts around and takes the form. That didn't actually happen, but it felt sort of like that. And I realized that if somebody, I don't know, hit me over the arm with a stick or whatever, so I lost all feeling in my hand, I wouldn't drop the sword. Right? Yeah, because I didn't, I didn't have to have my fingers around the, you know, my fingers were going to stay around the grip because the, the guard would keep them there. And so I would actually have to deliberately open my hand to get it out. As I imagine, you, you, some of these battles go on for a while. You've been swinging a sword for a few hours. Your hand is tired. You don't have any fine motor control. But with that sword, if you can just keep swinging your arm, you can keep hitting people. It was, oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Get, I, I totally, appro- I totally approve of your use of the money. If I had it, I'd give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I don't think you get rich in podcasting, but you know, if we do. No, sadly not. <laughs> yeah, or may- maybe maybe one of our books will do a Harry Potter on us and, and we'll all be you know, millionaires. Brilliant. <laughs> That'd be great. It <laughs> would, wouldn't it? Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Daniel. It's been a delight talking to you. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Danielle. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests patreon.com forward slash the sword guy join us next week we have two episodes next week on monday we have a very short episode where i will set your challenge for the month of may the challenges so far this year have have been to break a habit in january to create a habit in february to sleep better in march and to eat better in april so I wonder what May will bring. You're going to have to tune in to find out. And Friday next week, our regular scheduled interview is with Mike Lodes, who is a director, a fighter ranger, an author. And let's put it this way. 
Mike started swinging swords before I was born. So he has had an extraordinary and varied career, which includes things like riding a chariot through London rush hour traffic. And if you want to hear the story of that, you're just going to have to tune in next Friday. So subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, if you have a moment, if you could rate it and leave a review, that would really help. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week.